Hello and welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emily. And today we're joined by Kristen Grogan, who's a third-year DPhil student studying labour and modernist poetry. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thank you. It's great to be here. So today you wanted to talk to us about uh, the relationships between certain modernist poets or friendships. Um, tell, can you tell us a little bit more about Sure. So in my research, which is on, as you said, labour and modernist poetry, I come across a lot of stories and things which are entertaining and often will make it into just a footnote if they make it into the thesis at all. So I work on sort of groups of poets or a group of poets from um, who active between sort of the first decade of the 20th century to around the 70s. And some of them were friends and some of them were not friends or they had sort of antagonistic relationships. So for example, I work on two of my chapters. One chapter is on Ezra Pound and one is on Gertrude Stein, who were notoriously antagonistic towards each other. And so Stein in the autobiography that she wrote in um in 1930s, this the early 1930s, this wonderful autobiography that she writes, pretending to be the voice of her partner wife, Alice B. Toklas. Uh, she talks about the time that Ezra Pound came to visit her in, in their apartment in Paris. And Pound, she describes as quite violent, um, and all he wanted to talk about were Japanese prints. And Stein gets really annoyed at Pound because he, um, he sits on her favourite chair, and I think he breaks the chair. And that's a, that's a, you know, that's a no-no. You don't break Gertrude Stein's chair. <laughs> um, and so thereafter, Stein, um, Stein runs into Pound in the Jardin de Luxembourg. They're all living in Paris at this time. And Ezra wants to, you know, have a chat. And Stein makes an excuse that Alice Toklas has a sore tooth and um, that they're busy picking wildflowers and they never see Pound again. So some of the writers that I'm working on are friends and some of them are notoriously. So are there any reasons why Pound and Stein were so antagonistic, aside from the chair-breaking incident, which is unforgivable, really? Yeah, Um, yeah, you you really want to respect another person's furniture. Um, I think, well, I think partly they're both, like, particularly curmudgeonly figures in literary history. Stein is this kind of notoriously cantankerous, really hilarious, really, really interesting woman, but... um, Certainly, you know, she she falls out with people often and I think unforgivingly with her brother, Leo Stein, notoriously. But also, um, you know, eventually she and Picasso, who had a really close friendship, um, fall out. And Pound is, um, yeah, not not the kindest or gentlest of figures, as one would imagine. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways they're kind of, they're sort of similar. They're of a similar generation. Stein's a bit older, um, both brought up in um, sort of... So Stein was raised, for the most part, in San Francisco, Pound on the other side of um, of America, but they move to to Europe at similar stages, and there there are kind of resonances between their work, which I can imagine them having, yeah, antagonistic mm, relationships. Sort of that s- simplicity in. In Stein. In Stein. And, and then uh, the imagism in, in Pound as well. Yeah, in their early work. And I think also a kind of, a sort of, an impulse that we acknowledge a lot in Pound's work to be historical and to think about economics, um, which a lot of criticism on Pound is related to that. But Stein also has that impulse. It's just not quite so acknowledged. So she writes histories. Um, she writes about geography. She writes about economics. She's obsessed with money. But... She doesn't do it in the same way as someone like Pound or like Joyce, and she's quite resentful of that because she she doesn't have this kind of like obvious erudition. She's a very well-read, erudite woman in in her ways, um, but because her work isn't operating that tradition, she never achieves quite the same level of success. She says that those with the stink of the museums about them are the ones who get what a great success. line. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, and she puts James Joyce in that category. Did she get on with James Joyce? I don't know much about Stein and Joyce um, particularly. She was quite, I think she was quite resentful of him because she thought that the work that she was doing was sort of operating in a similar vein. So Stein famously says that there is no narrative in the three best novels of the 20th century. There's none in Proust's In Search of Lost Time, there's none in Ulysses, and there's none in Gertrude Stein's Making of Americans. So she's putting herself in this tradition of sort of masculine genius and epic genius. Um, Pound and Joyce, on the other hand, were good friends, at least for a while, before Pound sort of fell out with Joyce over disliking some of the later work that he produces. He says that the second half of Ulysses is crap. Um, <laughs> but when Pound first, one of my favourite, another favourite story that's probably going to be a footnote in my thesis, T.S. Eliot comes to visit Pound once in, I think, the early 20s in Italy. I might be wrong on the date. And Pound sends Eliot back to Paris with a big package for James Joyce. And in this big package, which Hemingway describes in a movable feast as sort of a brown package with all this like unwieldy kind of ribbon packaged by Ezra, um, Pound includes a bunch of sort of like trousers and old clothing and, and most significantly a pair of old shoes because Joyce was so poor that he didn't have shoes for that winter. He didn't have proper shoes. And so at back in Paris, Elliot delivers this to Joyce. Lewis is, is watching as Elliot and Joyce unravel, um, unwrap this package. And... Joyce opens it on this table in Paris, sees these shoes, and is just mortified that he's so poor that Ezra Pound had to send him his old shoes. And then he's and shown it in front of all of his friends. All of his friends. Yeah. And thereafter, Joy, um, Lewis sorry, says that Joyce will never let Lewis or Elliot buy him a drink ever again, that he like has to be the one to pay for everything, and that his Irish pride meant that, yeah. But hopefully his you know, feet were warm that winter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still, do you think he kept the shoes? I'd take the shoes. Wouldn't you take the shoes? Well, I think if you, if you were genuinely can't afford a pair of shoes. Shoes are expensive. Yeah. And necessary. Yeah, but his pride. His pride. I, yeah, I'd like to think that he kept the shoes. Probably didn't tell anybody that he kept the shoes. Probably didn't. I bet he didn't wear them in front of Elliot and Lewis. Yeah, not yeah. Ezra Pound. Yeah. Aw, Ezra Pound was trying to be nice for the first time in his life. Yeah, so that's one of the, the weird things about it. What? Yeah. yeah. What was the... Um, yeah, I think one of the things I find really interesting working on, on Pound, obviously my my research is um, a lot to do with sort of Pound's politics and his economic theories, and it gets sort of hard and depressing because he was such a super fascist. But he also, there is story after story of his sort of largesse and kindness. Mm-hmm. Which is Before he became, or sort of around the, the time of him becoming super fascist and anti-Semitic. Yeah, but largesse can also be a way of sort of demonstrating, it's a public show of yeah. your of your generosity, so it's yeah. not necessarily yeah. always kind-hearted, yeah. it's also a way of, sort of cultivating a public persona. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a gender component, this is very much an early 20th century's boys club, mm-hmm. for the most part, with Stein, and um, Stein is the kind of central female figure and a lot of it playing this kind of masculine role and actively, you know, having a wife being part of the genius club, whereas Alice Toklas's role is to talk to the wives of the geniuses. Was Alice Toklas a poet as well? Uh, no. Alice Toklas, for the most part, um, wrote, sorry, was Stein's sort of the, in terms of their, like, household division of labour, that did a lot of the kind of practical household stuff. It's like, it's very heteronormative in a way. And, you know, to clear space for Stein, the genius, to be a genius. Alice Toklas wrote a very, wrote a cookbook late in life. 
and an and an autobiography and recollection of of her time with with Stein. A real autobiography. Um, yes and no. The the word autobiography is sort of fraught when talking about somebody like Stein because and her life and her circle. So she writes in 1932. She writes the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which begins as a joke um, and becomes wildly successful. So Stein, up until then, had she'd been writing for decades by this stage. You know, QED, her first novel, her novella, her um, sort of lesbian novella, wonderful short novel, was finished in 1903. And Stein had so little success in the first decades of her career with publication. And she receives, I've been going for the last few weeks through letters to and from Stein and it's rejection letter after rejection letter, which are cruel. Some of them are just, I mean, we feel bad about academic publication, but this is a next level Letters that say, I'm sorry that there is just no place for this in either Britain or America. <laughs> letters where people sort of um, caricature Stein style responding back to her. Not a one, not a one. I do not have, I only have one life. I could not possibly read this book one time in my life, etc., etc. in this Steinian <laughs> language. And she, she ends up doing things like private publication. She has a decent amount of money behind her. Or, you know, publishing with small presses. Her books never sell. There are all these sort of humiliating letters where publishers are saying, we have all these copies, you have to take them off our hands. Um, if you don't, we're going to, you know, pulp them. And so in the early 30s, she writes this joke autobiography, or this autobiography that begins the joke, which becomes incredibly successful. And so Stein, who's always been a writer's writer and a sort of peripheral, avant-garde, eccentric genius, all of a sudden becomes properly famous. Uh, the book sells ridiculously well. It's eventually published in, in French and in Italian. She makes money. She's always had family money, but now she makes money from her writing. And later in the 30s, in that decade, she does lecture tours in America. She meets the Roosevelts. She's, you know, she's really a, a genius. But to counteract that, eventually in that decade, she also, she turns towards She's more interested in narration, and she writes another autobiography called Everybody's Autobiography. She writes an account of the Second World War called Wars I've Seen. So there is this this sort of playing with what an autobiography is, to bring it right back to that question. Do we know how Alice Toklas felt about having her voice appropriated in that way? Um, well, I can't speak directly for Alice Toklas, unfortunately. She, in all accounts, in of her life she was incredibly dedicated and devoted to Stein really just unbelievably loyal and hardworking and when Stein died um Toklas continued to sort of work for her legacy she ended up being quite impoverished for a lot of her life due to sort of complications over Stein's estate and the many modernist paintings that she'd bought Toklas who was Jewish like Stein eventually converted to Catholicism and the running theory is that because of the Catholic theories of the afterlife, it was an effort to be reunited with Stein. So there was just, yeah, really an outstanding level of dedication between the two. Some of their letters are online and they're just gorgeous, sort of ravishingly beautiful love letters. Something to aspire to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although maybe without quite the, um, drama. <laughs> yeah. The drama. And I mean, we might sort of personally quibble with the extent to which their relationship was, weirdly and performatively heteronormative mm -hmm. in their way. We might aim for a more equitable distribution of household labour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and less appropriation of voices. Yeah, although if it makes a book as fabulous as the autobiography of Alice B. Tuckless, then people are, you know, doing the police in different voices all over the place, so why not do it in such a wonderful way? So you have a story about um, 
a gift that was given to Stein. Yes. Uh, which yes. is really quite wonderful. Sure. So this, um, again, I was, I was reading the letters between Stein and Carl van Vechten, who was one of the sort of great impresarios of modernism, a very complicated man. And certainly his relationship with race and the African-American community is a, is, you know, a conversation for another day. In the thirties, I believe van Vechten becomes fascinated by, he sort of, he finds this, um, ceramic Mexican pig, ceramic pig and he loves this pig he thinks it's gorgeous and he writes to sign saying i've got this amazing pig would you be interested in a ceramic mexican pig i thought of you when i saw this pig oh how do you take that i don't know i'm i accept a pig i mean i'd also accept ezra pound's old shoes so <laughs> um, but yeah i think that's quite nice yeah um and stein says yes i would quite like this pig and so there are sort of months and months of exchanges between Van Vechten and Stein, in which Van Vechten is laboring over the best way to get this pig to Gertrude Stein in Paris. Like, how do I send you the ceramic pig without it breaking? It's this wonderful ceramic pig. Um, and he sort of thinks about the best way of wrapping it, how he can send it to her. Maybe it'll go with a friend. And after months, Stein gets a ceramic pig and she loves it. And there are just these letters in which she's exuberantly talking about how much she loves this pig. But Van Vechten isn't done, and quite soon after, he sends, I think with a friend, he sends another pig, an even bigger pig. And there are just these letters with Stein gushing about the pig, and she can't decide if she likes its nose or its tail better. <laughs> and she loves it so much that she holds a party for the ceramic pig. And all of her friends come over, and they all spend, have like a lovely party admiring this pig. It's just so party. frivolous and wonderful. Yeah, it is. I think Stein generally, she, I mean, she held sort of Saturday evening parties, uh, but there's a sort of this, a play about her, which is really attractive. She's, like I said, kind of grumpy and curmudgeonly and unforgiving, but so funny. I just love the idea of all these great modernist writers sort of coming round and admiring this <laughs> ceramic Mexican pig. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Travelled across an ocean. I don't know if we like its tail or its nose. <laughs> it's a wonderful pig. Uh, another gift that we were talking about a while ago, um, is, or another relationship that I really like is the relationship between some filmmakers, the Marx Brothers, mm -hmm. and an artist, Salvador Dali, which when I first read about this, it sort of surprised me. And then I realized that obviously there's so much in Marx Brothers films. It's so surrealist. It makes absolute sense that somebody like Salvador Dali and the Marx Brothers would be friends. But Harpo Marx and Salvador Dali met at a party in Paris in the thirties. So again, parties are a big thing for the modernists around this time and they're really taken with each other they there's a sort of a, um a weird surrealist bromance forms and dali sends harpo a gift for christmas which is a harp harpo obviously plays the harp wonderfully in the Marx brothers films um wrapped in cellophane which has barbed wire for strings and spoons as tuning knobs and Harpo is so taken with this harp, he takes a photo of himself playing this harp with his fingers wrapped in um, in bandages as if he'd been playing the barbed wire <laughs> and sends it to Dali. And Dali is also taken with that photograph and responds by sending a, a drawing, which is on the internet, you should look it up, um, of Harpo Marx playing a harp with a lobster inexplicably on his head. Um, <laughs> And their sort of their like bromance continues, and Dali writes a um, the screenplay for a, for a film for the Marx Brothers. It's something about giraffes. I forget the title. And unfortunately, it's never made because Groucho Marx decides that this film is just not funny. It's not Marx Brothers quality. Poor Dali. Poor Dali. And the film, the screenplay was lost 
until the 90s when it was found in some of Dali's papers. Are they, is there any talk of, of making it into an actual film? Oh, I don't know. That would be great. <laughs> Shall we do it? <laughs> yeah. Are you, I think you've got a groucho about you. Yeah. Next project. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. I would like to be Harper. So um, how do other modernist writers like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, for instance, uh, fit into this? Well, Fitzgerald was around Paris at this time, um, friends with Stein and Hemingway and co. There's a wonderful story um, towards the end of A Movable Feast by Hemingway where F. Scott Fitzgerald was concerned because Zelda, his wife, his um, sort of notorious, quite troubled, brilliant wife, had told him that he would never be able to satisfy a woman. And it was a question of measurement. (laughs) Right. Yes. And so poor F. Scott Fitzgerald, who is concerned about his measurements, goes to his friend Ernest Hemingway and says, look, brother, I, um, I have this, this worry. I, my wife says I'm never going to be able to satisfy a woman. He says, look, I've only ever been with Zelta. Of course, we have to sort of, um, a movable feast written by Hemingway many years after the fact. It's part of this kind of, um, this tradition of playful autobiography. Mythologizing all, in a way. Yeah, and they're all kind of taking digs at each other, like, oh, you know, this has happened ages ago. I'm going to, like, dig up some dirt on my friends. It's kind of the gossip girl of the early 20th century. Um, but Fitzgerald goes to Hemingway, says, look, I'm really concerned about my, my endowment. And Hemingway says, okay, look, come upstairs and I'll check. And so they go upstairs. This is all, this all happens in one sentence. Hemingway is like very, um, very reticent or very polite, surprisingly, about the situation. And obviously Fitzgerald drops his pants. Hemingway says, the problem is you've been looking from above. You can't (laughs) quite, you know, see the full glory of your measurement. Um, And, you know, you'll be absolutely fine, really. And Hemingway sort of reassures him and says, look, go to the the Louvre, look at some statues, like, compare yourself. (laughs) You'll probably feel much better. And Fitzgerald's like, "Mm, maybe. And Hemingway convinces convinces him that Zelda is Hemingway and Zelda notoriously dislike each other is just trying to undermine mm. that stuff that's making them bad about it. <laughs> oh, well, that is true friendship right there. Isn't it just? <laughs> yeah. Another kind of gift, the gift of confidence. The gift of confidence. The gift of, yes, exactly. Um, it must have been tempting for Hemingway to just mess with them. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely would have. If somebody came to me, yeah. All of this, all these kind of networks and communities translate into really interesting collaborations, really interesting um, sort of um, works at the time and a sort of a group aesthetics. Obviously, an avant-garde is always kind of a group aesthetic. Um, you subscribe to being an imagist, and all of a sudden you're one. You're a part of a collective. Um, but it was also it was part of a kind of effort, at least for people like Pound, to sort of resurrect a, a different. This is where it feeds back into my thesis: a different form of sort of labor and support for artists. So Pound in um, in Paris in the early 20s, when he first moves there, tries to start something called Bel Esprit, the Bel Esprit Fund, which is a sort of subscription-based service uh, where a bunch of writers would all contribute a certain amount of money, basically a, a like a 20s version of a Kickstarter, to to support other artists. And so the first person was going to be Elliot, he was going to be the first recipient of this fund, and all of their friends would give money, and then Elliot, who was at the time working for Lloyd's Bank and, you know, super depressed because Elliot, um, 
he was not, yeah, not a super happy dude. And he would be released from his job and would be able to lead a life of sort of glorious semi-poverty, but not have to work. He would be able to just write. And then the next person was going to be William Carlos Williams, who was a doctor in New Jersey for most of his life. And Elliot was so embarrassed by Pound's efforts, his sort of running around to all these people saying, give me money, we've got to get Elliot out of the bank, we've got to help my friend, that he just... He, like, protested wildly, and the thing never happened. But there's certainly this effort to to create new ways of, of supporting artists. Mm, alternative and, economies. And yeah, like that, alternative yeah. economies, yeah. And a sort of refiguring of systems of patronage, which mm-hmm. are already in place, sort of slipping or available to different people in the... Mm, yeah, it's like interesting to think of artists supporting one another rather than having sort of some... A rich lady, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, no, Absolutely. Um, I mean, part of it was political pound at this stage was sort of um, moving gradually towards this his sort of lifelong or very long held enthusiasm for an economic theory called social credit mm-hmm. um, developed by C.H. Douglas in the wake of the First World War and sort of printed in this um, left wing guild socialist for the most part newspaper called The New Age, which I mean, a big part of social credit and a big part of Pound's attraction to it was that. Um, all of society benefits from what artists produce. And so if we support artists, then it's, it's a good thing for the entire society. There's this kind of cultural dividend that could be paid. And it was, yeah, it certainly informed pounds thinking about what an artist should do and how an artist should be paid. So they were like quite supportive relationships in lots of ways, but were they also competitive? Not necessarily competitive in the same ways that we think of, you know, competing for jobs or publications necessarily. Competitive in to the extent that some of these writers become more canonical and more famous or well looked upon. Eliot, for example, pretty quickly or reasonably well enters the, the sort of establishment. Whereas Pound and you know Eliot is working for Faber and Faber and is much more um, sort of socially secure or set. Um, Pound goes and lives in a relatively isolated town in Italy and you know becomes a more and more vocal supporter of Mussolini and Italian fascism and so there's definitely this sense of uh, they sort of change directions or they move in different different ways especially after the first world war and into the 30s and with the sort of um, the political changes as well cause a lot of divisions. Is that partially to do with like trying to create a, a niche for yourself in a way like I'm, I am by differentiating yourself from your sort of colleagues or mm. your, your friends I guess you sort of manage it manage to create a sense of individuality mm. because I am the pound can be the sort of Mussolini supporter fascist, fascist. <laughs> um, yeah um, I think so I mean it's it's difficult because certainly in the first decades of the 20th century that kind of individualism which again is a complicated term especially when we're talking about American poets is sort of overtaken by, like, I think, what is a sort of genuine collective energy. Mm-hmm. I think I think as the century sort of wears on, especially beyond the 30s, the rise of Hitler with Mussolini, with the Spanish Civil War, they cre- create genuine differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, Stein and Picasso, for example, argue over the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Wyndham Lewis becomes, or briefly at least, and there are sort of, you know, differences of opinion for how long this lasts, is a vocal supporter of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, Wyndham Lewis, incidentally, is probably the grumpiest of the modernists. Um, Hemingway wow. described him, yeah, no, absolutely. Hemingway mm-hmm. used to teach Pound to bo- how to box in his apartment in Paris, teaching Ezra how to, you know, be a boxer, which is, <laughs> Pound had enough rage without <laughs> giving him some gloves and teaching him how to, yeah, throw a, throw a punch. 
And apparently, while Hemingway was teaching Pound how to box, Lewis would sit and watch them and sort of hope desperately that Hemingway would punch Pound out. (laughs) And Hemingway describes Lewis as watching him with the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. It's just that that term unsuccessful as well. Horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's genuinely horrifying. Um, Lewis really gives me the creeps. Absolute shivers up my spine. But he, you know, he writes these... Pound had sort of helped Lewis get published earlier on his life, and Lewis eventually publicly calls Pound a parasite and says that he's such a good parasite. If he ever wants to, you know, be parasitical on another body, Lewis can write him a reference. You know, this is a great parasite. He's a very effective parasite. Please do take this parasite. So they do. There are certainly tensions and divisions emerge and deepen. On on one level, they sound like really interesting people to Mm. hang out with. On another, it sounds like you'd be in danger of being insulted creatively at any time and turned into fiction. Yeah, I think you're probably at risk of a certain... It probably would take a reasonably thick skin. There's also, I mean, it gets it gets nastier as the century wears on. After the Second World War, so during the Second World War, Pound is employed by, by the Ministry of Popular Culture in Italy and gives a number of radio broadcasts. And as a result, he is tried for treason by the American government. So he spends six weeks in a disciplinary training centre in a cage outside Pisa, where he um, has something of a breakdown, his mental health certainly suffers, and he writes the magnificent peace encounters while he's in this in this cage. But eventually he's sent back to DC. So treason at this stage, I mean, treason is still obviously a, a thing, but is taken very, very seriously in the context of the, of the Second World War. People in Britain have been hanged. There was, uh, I think it was New Masses, a journal released a, a special issue around this time, the front cover of which read, Should Ezra Pound Be Shot? Pound's, um, Pound's defence was insanity, basically. And as a result, he spends 13 years in a mental asylum in Washington, D.C., St. Elizabeth's Hospital. So all of those sorts of lovely, glor- glorious stories of Pound giving shoes, etc., wind up in quite a sad um, story of the end of his life, which, again, becomes nastier and nastier. Pound, you know, becomes friends with members of the KKK at this time, with these, um, with terrorists who are very vocal supporters of racial segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pound in the 50s is not, it's not a happy story. It's really, it's, it's serious and it's genuinely upsetting and it's ethically and politically deplorable. Just to, you know, I feel one ought to qualify all of the lovely stories about them romping around Paris in the 20s with the reality of what happened in the later in the century. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The fantasy collapses in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And he writes a lot of sad poems later about the fantasy collapse. So is he in the hospital for the rest of his life? No, so he gets out and he goes back to Italy and he, um, he lives there until 1972. It's just, which is a long life. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember an undergraduate lecturer of mine once remarking that Ezra Pound outlived the Beatles, which is true. He, the Beatles have broken up by the time Pound died, which is wow. just crazy. And there he continues to receive sort of visitors. So Allen Ginsberg comes over and visits Pound in Venice, famously plays him some, some records, some Dylan and some Beatles. Don't know whether Pound was into it, whether he, you know... It's just interesting to think of all these sort of cultural influences overlapping one another in a way that you don't really think about. Yeah. Um, You sort of think about the, you know, Pound as a modernist, and the modernist Mm -hmm. period ends with Second World War, or even earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then they just sort of mentally vanish from your... Exactly. Yeah, but they just keep trucking. They, Mm -hmm. you know, really keep on... Some of them do. Certainly some of them die, die or stop writing earlier. But, yeah, Pound just... 
nothing seemed to stop that man. He kept going. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of the poets that we think of as sort of more recent or contemporary, you know, Elizabeth Bishop mm-hmm. visits him in, in Washington, D.C. and writes a poem about about him. Did Pound's relationships with the other surviving modernists resume after what happened during the war, or was he ostracized? Um, a little of column A, a little of column B. Certainly, there was actually quite a public attempt to, on the part of people like Hemingway and Elliot, to get Pound released. And to an extent, it's, or sort of common wisdom is that it's to do with their efforts that he was eventually released, partly. Um, when you have this sort of, when you have visitors like T.S. Eliot or people like T.S. Eliot taking an interest in one of your inmates, that's quite a, quite a serious thing or quite a respectable thing for an institution. It was also sort of fame for this particular hospital, right? Are there any other writers that Stein was close to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should, we should keep in mind that Stein was kind of a, a social butterfly to an extent and because she had these, um, these Saturday evening salons was spending time with Eric Satie and Jean Cocteau and um, Picasso and, and Matisse and so on. So really just um, all, of the, all of the big ones. But one of the, one of the stories that I find really interesting is that um, there was a sort of a mutual admiration between Stein and the wonderful African-American novelist Richard Wright. And Richard Wright wrote a review of Stein's book, Wars I've Seen. And um, Stein eventually reads this review and she responds by saying it's very interesting. His work is very interesting and she really heaps quite a lot of praise on him. But so in Richard's in Richard Wright's review, he responds sort of obliquely to a, a general criticism of Stein. So in one of the there's this big 1930s magazine, left wing magazine called New Masses, which was sort of one of the major organs of the Communist Party USA, major cultural organs. And the editor, Mike Gold, had written an article about Stein in which he calls her sort of degenerate. Um, Part of it is sort of veiled homophobic language, Mm -hmm. I think. He sort of paints her as this monstrous priestess. But partly it's because, I mean, the the main reason he paints her this way is because Stein had quite a bit of money, had family money because her father was involved with them streetcars basically in in San Francisco until he died and her older brother managed the family finances quite well but he paints her as this kind of like bourgeois evil and says that um yeah her work is idle her work is degenerate and any good Marxist reader refuses to be impressed by Stein and sees in her the sort of the symptoms of the decay of capitalist culture and so Richard Wright I think reads this review he um he speaks in his review of wars I've seen of a sort of a left-wing critic that he respected having attacked Stein and he's, he's very concerned because he likes Stein, but he worries that she's not revolutionary enough and that she's, you know, an, a capitalist stooge, basically. And so he responds by, and this I think is very strange, gathering a group of African-American workers into a room and reading to them from Melanchthon, which is part of Gertrude Stein's novel, Three Lives, which is about three women which is about an African-American woman. And so obviously a central concern here is race. Again, a complicated conversation. But he, um, Richard Wright is comforted by the fact that these workers respond really well to Stein's writing, that they all howled and shrieked and stomped, that they really get it. Um, and he says that, his, that Stein's revolutionary credentials weren't in doubt after that, that his, his passion for Stein's prose never concerned him. It's a weird image to think of people... This man reading this avant-garde writing to a group of African-American workers in order to test whether or not 
she's a sort of capitalist evil. Bizarre social experiment. Yes, it is. I think there's also this kind of general anxiety, certainly depending on the, um, around the 30s and onwards, um, about whether or not literature can speak to and can be for um, people, broadly speaking, especially working class people. Um, and so you see the shift in sort of 30s literary culture. You see a lot of working class writers, you see mass publication of, of books. Um, one of the writers that I work on uh, Langston Hughes was really, really influenced by this. Um, so Hughes is kind of an interesting figure because he's a left-wing, sometimes quite radical left-wing African-American writer who's also friends with Ezra Pound, which is a weird, Pound was an anti-Semitic fascist mm-hmm. at this stage, living in, you know, in fascist Italy, and, and Hughes was on his way to 1930s Russia. And Pound writes with, with intense admiration of Hughes's writing and says, you know, your novel was really good. I gave it to my father. My father really liked it. I gave it to my wife. She really liked it. And I also really, really liked it. But Hughes is definitely trying to create literature that is sort of proletarian, at least in some ways, and can be accessible for, the, for a lot of people. And so there is a, there are sort of tensions. There are different pockets. It's a very various scene of writing that's really avant-garde, writing that's written for sort of coteries and writing that is self-consciously trying to be accessible. Well, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, we're going to be putting up some more information on our blog, which is uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. Anytime. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful.